Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. In this edition, Professor Jeremy Black, author of Insurgency and Counterinsurgency, talks to the critic's deputy editor, Graham Stewart, about the performance of British forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. Professor Jeremy Black, it's perhaps inevitable that we think of the um, operations in Afghanistan and in Iraq in the same light. They have a a common cause in the terror atrocities of 9-11. But is it really helpful from his military historian's point of view to lump them together? Well, that's a very interesting question. I mean, in operational terms, there were obviously differences. Um, Iraq had a conventional army um, that was deploying um, relatively advanced weaponry and was overcome accordingly. But in terms of two things, one, what happened in Iraq subsequently, the intractable nature of if you like, trying to bring it under control, um, and the similarity of that to Afghanistan, that has operational and tactical uh, congruences. And also, as you mentioned, there was a strategic commonality in that um, they came from a prioritization on the part of the United States with that broader area, with the issue of the so-called war on terror, rather than with, say, great power confrontation with Russia or China. So from the United States point of view, there was a strategic commonality, and there was a strategic commonality for Britain in that the prime strategic motivation was cooperation with the United States. Mm. So um, we talk about both conflicts as part of the war on terror. Uh, Both conflicts are various phases, and I wonder to what extent the war on terror um, ceases to be the major focus and a war of nation building and reconstruction takes over. Well, that's a very fair question. I mean, can I just say, when you use the phrase, we talk of it, I mean, I think it's fair to say that, you know, and obviously this is always difficult for people, there is, as it were, um, exclamation marks placed around that. That is a phrase that is used. Um, It helped to explain a logic that was advanced, a kind of public strategy. Um, But clearly, even in terms of assisting terrorism, there was a great difference between the state-backed terror that you might identify with, at times, Iraq, or for that matter, Colonel Gaddafi's Libya, and the more diffuse pattern, but still deadly pattern, that one associates with Al-Qaeda. And of course, Al-Qaeda and Iraq were not close. So, insofar as it was that term is to be used it should be used with caveats and obviously we're well aware we've already discussed um, the IRA for example in our programs I mean in that case many Americans were actively sponsoring terrorism so we have to be aware that a lot of this um, has that deadly term contextualization which most people don't want to confront. 
Mm-hmm. Well, if, if we look at it initially chronologically and then a bit more thematically, uh, the um, Afghan uh, campaign starts first. It starts very rapidly after the events of 9-11. Uh, the British forces are deployed as part of the um, invasion of Afghanistan in November, December um and uh 2001 and, and that initial um conquest um over forever regime however you want to describe it it is actually in narrow terms tremendously successful it, it's all over the taliban are driven out of afghanistan in, in in a few weeks how did that seemingly seemingly being the word in italics how did that seemingly go right so quickly Well, the Taliban itself was weak in northern Afghanistan. I mean, it was primarily a regional movement, particularly linked to ethnic Pashtuns in the south. And the, the prime external intervention, which was the United States, was well able through actually classic, if you like, counterinsurgency techniques, finding local allies, using them, providing um, key uh, military assistance at points of enormous importance in the sense of the use of air power, but not uh, the grunts on the ground. Um, And that worked very well. Um, And obviously, on top of that, uh, there was a benign international scenario in that Pakistan, which throughout the Afghanistan crisis of the number of years has on the whole played a very malign role. Um, Pakistan realized in 2001 that it really did need to watch its open support for the Taliban and indeed for Al-Qaeda. I mean, it's no accident that Osama bin Laden, when he was killed, was found on Pakistani soil. And the argument that the Pakistanis didn't know he was there is an absurdity. Um, So I think there was a congruence of events on the ground, international circumstances, well-applied force, and a sensible goal. And the sensible goal was that of trying to isolate Al-Qaeda from its political support. As I understand it, initially, the Taliban were told that if they, you know, as it were, handed over Al-Qaeda, they wouldn't be attacked. Apparently, that was not viable from their point of view. Um, But there was a focus on the part of the Americans on dealing with the Al-Qaeda leadership and network and not an attempt to engage with a a remoulding of Afghanistan as a whole. Mm -hmm. As you put it, the use of the term nation building. And in that initial you know, lightning conflict of um, November, December um, 2001, uh, did, did British forces play a, a significant part in, in the operations or, or, uh, or a, a minor one? A minor one. I mean, the key special forces components were American. Um, but, you know, the British did play a minor role. When Operation Telic begins in 2003, Operation Telic being the British operations in Iraq, it's a period where um, 
our presence in Afghanistan is at a, a reasonably controlled level. There's not the wild scale insurgency in Helmand province, which is lately going to will, will subsequently uh, break out in full force. It, it, was there a sense in 2003 as British troops, and we are talking a significant invasion force, 46,000 British forces were involved in the um, initial stages of the invasion of, of Iraq. Was there a, a sense perhaps that uh, this would be a, an operation um, like it recently happened in, in Afghanistan or, uh, or previously the first Gulf War over Kuwait uh, and the learnings were coming from there? Or was there amongst um, the military strategists and planners a real sense that this would be a different sort of conflict? Well, it was going to be a different sort of conflict to 1991 because the goals were more ambitious um, in the shape of the conquest of Iraq as opposed to just regaining Kuwait. Um, there was also no similarity to the uh, struggle uh, in Afghanistan in the sense that the Taliban did not have, the Taliban government did not have um, a um, an air force, an air defense system, a significant force of tanks, and what might come with that. It wasn't, you know, so it was a different type of military struggle. And I think it's fair to say that, uh, I mean, each war is, you have to be careful about reading from another war. I think it's fair to say that there was a significant degree of confidence that the air defence system of Iraq could be suppressed, as it occurred in 1991, that Iraqi ground forces could be disorientated by the pace of advance, and that this would impose a, um, a probable defeat. Um, on the Iraqis. I think the key element here was the example of 1991 rather than the example of, mm. um, of Afghanistan. And it's also worth bearing in mind that the Iraqi military had not been um, really rebuilt after its defeat in 91. Um, there'd been a process of military sanctions, there hadn't been, whereas in the 1980s, um, Western powers had supplied Iraq with armaments and support in order to try and bolster it against Iran. That process had not occurred thereafter in the 1990s. So Iraq was militarily weaker um, than it had been. And there was also the hope, I mean, this proved mistaken, that it would be possible to invade not just from the south, but also from the north, uh, using uh, the fact that Turkey was a NATO ally. In the end, the Turks weren't interested in that, um, although there was, of course, supporting Kurdish military operations in northern Iraq, and those were important. And the way the Kurds have been treated in recent years uh, by Western powers in letting them down has been very shameful. Mm -hmm. um, how would you assess each of the 
free British services in the first phase of Operation Telic? Well, the British proved successful. I mean, more successful than was subsequent. They were subsequently to do in holding their position round round Basra. Um, they weren't expected to advance the distance of the Americans and to maintain that degree of dynamism, but the amphibious attack on the Alfor Peninsula was a success. It was a success against um, you know, pretty strong forces. And I think the British did well. And um, I think at that stage of the war, um, although they didn't have the drama of taking Baghdad, I think one could fairly say they did well. And there was a significant role for uh, the Navy in uh, firing missiles and um, uh, also uh, uh, fleet air arm as well as the RAF. Well, and also providing platforms from which helicopters could fly and, um, uh, you know, there was the need for amphibious operations. I mean, Iraq was attacked both from the sea and from land, uh, land being obviously um, the border with Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, uh, but the sea as well, and the you know the upper part of the Persian Gulf. Um, and I think it's fair to say that uh, the British did well. Mm. I mean, you know, it was primarily an American-led coalition. But if you contrast the British effort with, for example, the much smaller effort by other powers, I mean, you mentioned forty-six thousand. Uh, British forces, I think the number of Australians who also did well, uh, was about 2000. So, you know, um, you know, the coalition of the willing also included Spain. But I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think there are any Spanish troops there. So I think that the British um, played a significant role, not least because if they hadn't been there, there would have been added military tasks for the Americans. And the Americans, the the force the Americans deployed was, I think, about a quarter of a million. I think I'm right. I can look it up if you like. And that was considerably smaller than the force they deployed in 1990 to 1991, which I think was about 600,000. So the American military had been slimmed greatly during President Clinton's administration. President Clinton was not a sensible or safe custodian of the American military. And that meant the Americans, in a way, needed assistance more than possibly people anticipated or realized um, in confronting Iraq in 2003. Or another way of looking at it is that the Iraq war erodes in part because there was a strategic opportunity for the Americans um, because at that stage, they didn't have to fear uh, the need for confrontation, let alone conflict, with either Russia, China, or North Korea, or indeed Iran. Um, with the overthrow of Saddam's regime, Iraq is um, placed into four different occupation zones. Uh, the British have, uh, I mean, the multinational force, but overwhelmingly the British have um, command over uh, the southern zone, um, which the principal cities are, are, are Basra and Amara. 
Um, did this involve for the British challenges which were different to those the uh, Americans were facing uh, to the north? Well, Iraq is like Afghanistan, or indeed these days Britain. It's not an area of consistent ethnicity or um, uh, environment, right? So you've got different um, uh, ratios of Shia and Sunni, you've got different ethnicities, you've got different, as it were, political groups, you've got different environments. On top of that, as you correctly said, um, although legally a government, the Saddam Hussein really was a regime, and it was regime-based in, in, in essence, um, clan networks within certain Sunni circles, particularly in areas uh, to the north and northwest of Baghdad, all of which were in the American zone and areas which proved of, in some cases, of particular difficulty. So um, I think it's fair to say that the British, they had the zone that you would have assumed. It was the zone that they had conquered. Um, it wasn't per se the most difficult zone. And as you may be aware, in the initial stages when there were difficulties, particularly at the city of Fallujah, where there was a sustained problem with counterinsurgency, um, the British occasionally, I mean, most of them were much too clever to make criticisms, but occasionally presented themselves as more adroit, less concerned with the use of hard-edged force, less kinetic, if you like to use that term. And I think in the case of one or two foolish commentators, there was a degree of um, assumption that the British knew how to do it. That, of course, came badly unstuck and was very foolish anyway. Um, when and how did it begin to become unstuck? And might different tactics, different strategy have uh, made for a different outcome in, in a counterfactual uh, assessment? Well, that's interesting. And as you know, I mean, for both Iraq and in Afghanistan, we have a lot of um, literature on these subjects. And you may know I've written a book on insurgencies and counterinsurgencies. I mean, I can only give you my personal interpretation. My personal interpretation is that there wasn't really a strategy. There was a set of assumptions that it would be possible in post-conquered Iraq to restore a civil society that was politically benign with, as it were, the military only there to provide a kind of interim civil police force. That set of assumptions didn't constitute a strategy because, in practical terms, they had no idea how to create that situation. And I think it's fair to say that the situation was based on very flawed intelligence and analysis. So you could, if you like, um, discuss the failings, not, I mean, you know, the classic approach are, are, are in both Iraq and Afghanistan is to argue in Britain 
that there were serious failings on the part of politicians. And clearly there were. Um, neither uh, Tony Blair nor Gordon Brown were adroit, successful or perceptive as, as leaders, if you like, uh, of, a, of a war. But I think it's also fair to say that military intelligence was deeply flawed. I think um, in both Afghanistan and Iraq, there was a lack of understanding of the situation. And I think that that helps to explain what goes wrong. Now, there are other factors. Clearly, Iran, uh, um, Iran intervened to a considerable extent in um, destabilizing the situation, not least in uh, funding and encouraging militias, which, you know, to challenge both Britain and America. Um, the, the, there are standard equations for the amount of manpower you should have if you wish to try and control an urban insurgency. Um, you need hardly be told that was not the force available. But I am not convinced that even more or a lot more or even a bit more military wherewithal would have actually made up for a fundamentally mistaken strategy based on deeply flawed assumptions and inadequate intelligence. So they put in the front line, as it were, brave men who risked and in some cases lost their lives um, as a result of a botch up. Well, it, it's clear that um, uh, Whitehall, particularly uh, Tony Blair and, and Gordon Bryan um, ex must accept, even if they don't, must accept their, their share of the blame. I, I rarely hear uh, much criticism given to the senior military British command, uh, though, um, wh why is that? And, and should they oh, I'm not sure that's them? true. There's a number of books drawing serious attention to the flaws of generalship both over Iraq, but even more over Afghanistan. There is quite a lot of literature on that. Um, and indeed, if you, you know, if you look at my publications going back, you will say I, you will see I drew attention to deficiencies. And I mean, I can recall going to a meeting um, in the mid 2000s, uh, organized by defense intelligence to try and consider what would happen if the um, if the military commitment to Afghanistan was increased. And I, and I wasn't the only person, was really surprised at the, um, shall we say, limited understanding of the person in charge there. Okay. Um, to what extent was, were British forces given the run of their southern zone or was there a lot of uh, logistical and heavy lifting back up from the Americans provided as well? The latter, and the latter became more conspicuous, and in a sense that prefigured what was to happen in, in Afghanistan. And that then obviously created, if you want to use the term, difficulties of narrative 
for the British military because they weren't happy with what they then perceived as criticism, and in some cases scorn, from the Americans. Now, again, most of the Americans were too intelligent to do that, uh, but nevertheless, there was a sense in, um, in British military circles that they were being let down. I mean, I think it's fair to say that, as we've already indicated, this is both correct and inadequate. It's correct in the sense that um, the political leadership and support was poor and flawed, but it's also inadequate because as I put it at the time, one had to remember that the politicians were both the politicians out of uniform and the politicians in uniform. And the politicians in uniform didn't do much better than the civilian ones. Not, it's not the case of all of them. There were some perceptive people, but I will make a remark to you, which I thought was a very interesting one made to me by a Colonel who said to me, what's interesting is he said, you know, when things go wrong and things are going wrong, not a single general is being sacked. And I think that was a very interesting point. You know, you go back to something we've already discussed, Dixon's book on the psychology of military incompetence, that under the, under the strain and stress of command uh, and conflict, you sort out your better commanders from your worst commanders and you get rid of your worst. As you may know, there's an excellent piece by David French on the number of generals that were sacked by the British during World War II. I think it's fair to say that that was not the most obvious feature of the Iraq and Afghanistan commitments. Let's just put it like that. Um, and, you know, there was, and in particular, this came to a height in Afghanistan in the late 2000s, uh, where there was quite justified fury about the poor protection that troops had, both in helicopters and in vehicles, and particularly against improvised explosive devices. And that was correct. They were right to be cross. But equally, the part of this was the folly of encouraging um, ministers to feel that the military could do it. So it was a two-way process. Now, if you want to be really harsh, I would not go this far. You could link this with two uh, political battles. One, the political battle over NATO, and two, the political battle over procurement. In the first case, what Iraq had shown is that NATO was deeply divided. France and Germany, and indeed, the majority of the NATO powers in, uh, in Europe were, to put it mildly, reluctant about Iraq, France and Germany actively opposed. And there were questions, particularly in America, as to whether NATO had any continuing role. And one of the uh, 
um, as it were, as Afghanistan deteriorates from the mid 2000s, it, as it were, provides an opportunity for NATO to show that it does and for NATO allies like the Germans to show that they can be good allies. So that's a point to make. And you could argue that that took precedence over a real reading of the situation on the ground. But secondly, of course, there was a significant political battle. We were after um, the uh, Cold War, um, the period of so-called peace dividends, the, you know, a sense of pressure on the military. And in a way, um, Afghanistan in particular, Iraq to a certain extent, helped to provide the army with a logic for its um, numbers and its role. Now, this doesn't have to be, I'm not implying some Machiavellian purpose here, but I'm simply saying that these clearly uh, played a part and also the kind of military structure. I mean, a good thing about a military structure is it's full of can-doers, which is excellent. People who, given a task, will execute it. It's why military people are often very impressive. But on the other hand, that can be linked with a failure to consider the possibility that things will go wrong, which is why, of course, the number of people who can do strategy are so much fewer than those who can do tactics or the operational level. And you could take it a stage further. I have taken it a stage further to argue that those people who are good at the tactical level are not always good at the operational level. And those people who are good at the tactical and operational level are often not very good at the strategic level. And I think that that was a dimension on the military response to uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. And when it went wrong, in both cases, there was a tendency to blame others, which is understandable. Um, because in part others were to blame. And, you know, it's quite clearly the case that Mr. Blair and Mr. Brown were inadequate. Um, but that was not the full story. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, one area that the politicians could at least attempt to absorb themselves from is uh, some aspects of the equipment. I mean, it, it, politicians don't necessarily know that um, Land Rovers are, are, are going to find themselves deeply vulnerable to, to IEDs. It is surely the, the, the role of, uh, of uh, the officers, the senior, the major generals to, to uh, point that out in, in advance. The, the lack of, of properly armoured equipment became one of the real problems in both um, Iraq and Afghanistan. In, in fact, in Afghanistan, I believe almost half the uh, British casualties, uh, British fatalities were uh, uh, were from IEDs. Um, why did we find ourselves with such inadequate equipment, and how readily did we adapt to uh, an asymmetric form of warfare? Well, I mean, partly the sophistication and ability of the other side in each case to respond to their military opportunities was under assessed. I think there's no two ways about that. 
um, the effectiveness of um, terrorist weaponry in, in increased and terrorist tactics became better. No two ways about that. Uh, secondly, there was a failure to understand and anticipate the rate at which equipment would become degraded, worn out, if you like, in what were hostile environments. So I think that was a significant issue. But yes, you have correctly anticipated the point that they hadn't really adequately predicted in, you know, in the procurement cycle what they might need, which is surprising. Let's just put it like that. Now, looked at on the other hand, you could say that um, we're not talking about the speed necessary to produce a new frigate or to bring in a new system of um, air-to-ground missiles and the sophisticated electronics required. So it should have been the case that given the terrible human consequences for the troops involved, more should have been done um, to apply and reorganize resources to the end of looking after people. There was a duty of care towards the troops. That duty of care was not handled adequately, either in Iraq or in Afghanistan. And um, I think it is a shameful episode. Uh, but, you know, I mean, th there is the bigger question of was the strategy sensible? I don't think the strategy was sensible. The strategy was this is the front line in the war on terror. Um, I don't think that was a particularly sensible approach to it in either Iraq or Afghanistan. And certainly um, it begged the question about the nature of the British commitment. Um, but the strategic incoherence became more apparent with time. And what is particularly sad is there were already bright people saying, this is all ridiculous, we should be focusing on China. I mean, if you look at the 2000s, I, I can remember most years, I went to give a lecture at the Naval War uh, College in Newport, Rhode Island, where the Navy was wargaming conflict with China. And if you spoke to navalists privately, they were quite open in their view that the United States was fighting the wrong war, that this was foolish, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously, as Chinese policy became more obvious, you end up getting what I think it was President Obama called the pivot to Asia. Now, given that that was probably fairly obviously, I mean, I thought it was obvious already, um, but given that it was even somebody who was a bit dim should have been able to pick up that that was the direction of travel. You do have to ask yourself, why were lives being risked in this sideshow? And obviously that situation was exacerbated by inadequate protection and flawed weaponry poor rules rules of engagement etc etc and specific deficiencies of the 
operational framework and uh, implementation in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And that's been extensively written about. But there is the broader strategic question of prioritization. Prioritization had gone wrong. And I'm not sure that the direction of travel was sufficient towards a strategic reorientation was sufficiently understood. Even if you looked at that particular part of the world, Southwest Asia, sometimes called by the British the Middle East, but it's not a terribly helpful phrase to discuss everything from the Suez Canal to the Indus. But if, even if you just look at that area, the prime strategic challenge to Western interests was neither Al-Qaeda, nor was it um, Saddam Hussein, nor after he had been toppled and eventually executed, um, um, uh, Iraqi movements. The prime strategic challenge was Iran. And obviously, the destruction of the Saddam Hussein regime strengthened Iran. That was a point that was well understood by strategists in 1991, that one of the problems then if, if was if uh, Saddam Hussein had been overthrown in the aftermath of the first Gulf War, that this might well really help Iran. And in the end of the day, Iran was helped. And as you can see at the present moment, Iraq is increasingly an Iranian client state. Now, devoting significant resources to Afghanistan did not alter Iranian behavior to the better. And that was despite the fact that there is a considerable frontier between them. Given that that's the case, you might well ask, would it not have been simpler to think of other ways to either deter or restrain Iran rather than losing manpower, resource, political will in Afghanistan? And I suspect that in years to come, um, strategists looking back on this period will argue that there was a deeply flawed process. Now, for the British, it's hard because we want to be America's ally. America is our patron power. Um, there is a lot of also affinity with the values offered. But part of the need for national interest is sometimes you don't go along with your allies. And we can see this in both cases. The Americans, whether you think this is wise or not, we're not discussing that. We're just saying the Americans didn't go along with us over Suez. In fact, they were actively very seriously unhelpful. Uh, and we didn't support the Americans in the Vietnam War. So you then have to ask the question whether British government, and do bear in mind that the international coalition over Afghanistan peeled off. And you have to ask the question whether the British government followed the sensible policy in that context, which is a very hard one, because none of us like to give in to terrorists. None of us like to see lives wasted and to say, well, this wasn't a success. 
and none of us want to leave the Americans in the lurch. Uh, equally, um, as we've just seen now, the Americans are quite prepared to leave others in the lurch when it suits them. Well, we're, we're talking now from the perspective of Kabul having fallen, essentially all of Afghanistan having fallen to the Taliban. And everything we reflect on that is obviously influenced by, by that knowledge. Uh, back in um, 2010, uh, there having been a year of very significant casualties in the hard fighting for the British in Helmand province, uh, there is the surge. In, in the short term, is the surge a case of being you know, in a hole and digging deeper, or does it actually shift the terms of the campaign in a way which then led uh, the, the end of active combat mission for, for the British uh, by 2014? Well, remember the, ter the use of the term surge reflected its use in Iraq and there was a narrative that the surge had worked in Iraq. I mean, obviously that, I agree with you about the problem of hindsight, that narrative looked considerably less happy from the point of view of the subsequent emergence of Islamic State. I mean, to put it mildly, it was ridiculous, but we'll leave that aside. The narrative at the time was that surge had worked in Iraq, therefore it should work in Afghanistan. Well, Afghanistan is a very different environment, it's larger, um, and also there were fewer troops available. Um, but um, in a sense, in part, the Americans were taking over. And they had clearly concerns about the British, they were in turn reading from their narrative over Basra towards the narrative over Helmand. And I think it's fair to say that um, the surge itself was based on a misunderstanding. It was based on the misunderstanding that A, you can force battle on your opponents and B, if you force battle on your opponents, you will clearly win and that they will accept the verdict of that victory. All of those were flawed assumptions. But given those flawed assumptions, the role of the British was even more ridiculous because they didn't have the manpower to take part in that level of activity. It ought to be said that another two, three, four, five, six, seven, ten thousand British troops would not have changed the situation in the long term, and anybody who had any sense realised that. Well, it is, I mean, it is striking the scale of the commitment. Apparently, at one stage, uh, Camp Bastion, the uh, main British base in Helmand, it was having 600 flights a day. I mean, it's turning it into a, a major airport. Um, we, we pull out, uh, I mean, we, we begin to scale down below 9,000 troops in Afghanistan in 2012 and then pull out our, our combat role in, in 2014. Um, I, I'm trying to draw together Afghanistan with Iraq and say, you know, what lessons were learned by the military and the politicians. But in, in, in asking that question, I, I, you, we also have under David Cameron's government that the British operation in Libya. Um, were, were, lesson, you know, were, were lessons learned um, with, 
which which led to the the nature of that air war there, or uh, or how, how should we see that that um, that also ultimately rather unsuccessful uh, foray? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you know, because we also ought to build into the equation Syria, where the government decided not to act, the Cameron government decided not to act after criticism in the House of Commons, including some quite perceptive discussion by people who were adroit in strategic issues. I'm thinking of Julian Lewis, for example, who gave an, an important speech. Um, well, first of all, there is no magic answer, all right? You have to judge each case on its own merits. You always have to be cautious of reading from one to another. Two, it helps if you have specific goals. If your specific goal, let us say, let us say the British had intervened in Syria and the specific goal was not the overthrow of President Assad, I'm not quite sure how that would have happened, and the Russians certainly wouldn't have liked it, but the specific goal was to respond to the use of gas by Syria in order to show this was completely unacceptable by destroying the main military airbase, and therefore that would also mean destroying the missile system to protect it. Um, the British and the Americans were quite capable of that. So you could say that would be a sensible commitment. The problems you've got are twofold, though. One, if you make a commitment, you don't know what is going to happen. That is always the case. So you destroy Saddam Hussein, a loathsome piece of work and a dangerous man, but you replace him with a more powerful Iran. You overthrow or help overthrow the Gaddafi regime, uh, but you end up with chaos in Libya, much more humanitarian disaster and many more problems for Europe on its southern flanks. So those are classic examples where a, in the first case, a non-limited war, Iraq, in the second case, a very limited war with more limited rules of engagement, Libya, neither of them had the consequences you want. You are more likely to incur military problems for yourself, which is separate to the issue of political problems. We've just been talking about political problems in the strategic sense, but military problems will be greater if you put in an occupation force. An occupation force is by its nature a First of all, you have to protect it, increasingly have to protect it, which becomes a military goal in itself, rather than that of achieving anything in particular. You made reference to Camp Bastion's large number of flights, but of course that's largely because, or substantially because, so many supplies have to be brought in. You know, it's, it's as it were, supplying the force rather than actually it achieving whatever you might think it should be trying to achieve. And secondly, you're apt to accrue a whole set of political, social, maybe cultural goals, maybe military goals, as in trying to equip and train local forces, um, which at best are going to be difficult 
and at worst lead to considerable confusion, what is known as mission creep, and are likely to increase the cost and scale of your commitment and possibly your failure. Um, I'm a great believer in the need to fight when it's crucial. I think that's very important. And I think there are many circles in British public debate, particularly I'm afraid in universities, which I think take their uh, lines from those whom one might regard as hostile to any concept of patriotism. So I would regard myself as a patriot and I think war is necessary. But as I always used to tell my students when I was lecturing on war, when you go to war, usually both sides believe they can win and inevitably at least one is wrong. So conflict very rarely works out as you envisage. That doesn't mean it isn't right to fight, but it does mean you should do so with due caution. I don't believe that the strategic bases for the commitments to Iraq and Afghanistan were thought through adequately. And I think that the more serious problems, which in that region was Iran, and in the greater global situation was the rise of a China-Russia axis, I think those have benefited enormously by the, from the folly of those commitments. Well, on that um, very strategic note, uh, we will have to leave it. But uh, Professor Jeremy Black talking us through the, the conflicts uh, primarily in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Could I just say, as you've correctly said, and listeners uh, should always be told when we're doing this, we're recording this on the Monday afternoon. I think it's fair to say that for many people, I mean, including myself, who had anticipated this, there is nevertheless a great sense of shock. There is a, a feeling of understandable and quite right sympathy for those who risked and in some cases gave their lives, not just British and American, but also our Afghan uh, allies and supporters. Uh, I, in my life, have spent a month in Afghanistan. Um, the people there are not naturally uh, any worse than anybody else. They are not naturally as they might be portrayed. Some, and many of them are try as decent human beings are trying to live their lives in very harsh circumstances. To see a total failure, which is what has happened, should make us all pause for thought. That's point one. Secondly, I think it should make us think even more clearly about the need for sensible prioritization in strategic terms. As you say, I like to think, I think strategy is crucial. And that means being willing to fight, but also being sensible about it, knowing how to deter, but also understanding that deterrence doesn't always work. And thirdly, I'm a great believer in context. I think that when you see what's going on in the world, and prior to this, we had 
the uh, already this year totalitarianism on the rise in Belarus in Myanmar we have the absolute chaos in Ethiopia um, when you see these things you cannot but be amazed at the shallowness of so much grievance culture in Britain and in the United States and I do think our cultures our societies our civilization needs to get a grip on itself and understand that the rest of the world doesn't feel the same belief that our issues are always so significant. And I actually think it's quite shameful if you read the newspapers of the last month, if you knew what was going on and you'd anticipated the crisis or just been thinking about the war in Ethiopia and Eritrea, and to see some of the ludicrous nature of grievance culture, identity politics, some of the bizarre things. And I have to say, and I'm ashamed about it, um, it's not due to what I wanted, the way in which universities have drifted away from studying serious topics such as war and politics in order to focus on the sort of bizarre things that they often do. I feel a sense of both depression and foreboding. Professor Black, let's leave it there. Thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.